being 81 years old. He said he got so much spiritual food from reading it, he is sorry he does not get it anymore. If he had the money, he would send it to you. I was the one who paid for the paper all the years I had you send it to my two brothers in Texas. They were both invalids and not able to pay for it themselves. But I have not got anything I can send you now. Needless to say, we have gladly re-entered their names on our list. We had dropped them because we had heard nothing about them for over two years and knew not they were still in this world of sin. A brother in New York writes, I am out of work and have not the means to purchase the books that I would. So, you see, that I depend much on the studies for personal help in understanding the scriptures. A sister in Scotland writes, I am writing you a few lines to thank you ever so much for your kindness in remembering a poor unworthy creature like me. I cannot thank you enough for entering my name on your list for the magazines. They are very precious to me. I have not been able to attend the means of grace for over a year, and it is longer than that since I last sat down. Mr. Pink said, This dear soul is heavily afflicted. In addition to her own ailment, her husband had a stroke of paralysis last winter. End of quote. It is so comforting for me to read these precious magazines in my lonely hours when I feel so depressed and cast down. They contain sound doctrine which makes me lift up my heart and praise to the Most High for teaching His servants by His Spirit in this cloudy and dark day. A preacher in Michigan writes, I received your studies in the Scriptures and have read them prayerfully and must confess that I have received much benefit from them. I hope to be able to buy the bound volumes, but we must go easy in these times. Some weeks we must get along with less than five dollars, one pound. But God has always given us shelter and enough to eat. The letters are fair samples of what we are now receiving from an increasing number of those who are poor in this world's goods, but rich in faith. What a privilege it is to minister unto such, while the Lord is pleased to use the studies as an humble instrument of feeding those who could not pay for them, even if asked to do so. We have no fear that He will not continue to provide the means to make this possible. Our greatest concern is to locate more of these needy ones, and if our hearers are acquainted with such, we would esteem it a favor for them to send us their names and addresses. Arthur Pink Study number five, Saving Faith, Its Difficulty some of our hearers will probably be surprised to hear about the difficulty of saving faith. On almost every side today it is being taught, even by men styled orthodox and fundamentalists, that getting saved 
is an exceedingly simple affair. So long as a person believes John 3.16 and rests on it, or accepts Christ as his personal Savior, that is all that is needed. It is often said that there is nothing left for the sinner to do but direct his faith toward the right object, just as a man trusts his bank or a wife her husband, let him exercise the same faculty of faith and trust in Christ. So widely has this idea been received that for anyone now to condemn it is to court being branded as a heretic. Notwithstanding, the writer here unhesitatingly denounces it as a most God-insulting lie of the devil. A natural faith is sufficient for trusting a human object, but a supernatural faith is required to savingly trust in a divine object. While observing the methods employed by present-day evangelists and personal workers, we are made to wonder what place the Holy Spirit has in their thoughts. Certainly, they entertain the most degrading conception of that miracle of grace which he performs when he moves a human heart to truly surrender unto the Lord Jesus. Alas, in these degenerate times, few have any idea that saving faith is a miraculous thing. Instead, it is now almost universally supposed that saving faith is nothing more than an act of the human will which any man is capable of performing. All that is needed is to bring before a sinner a few verses of Scripture which described his lost condition, one or two which contain the word believe, and then a little persuasion for him to accept Christ and the thing is done. And the awful thing is that so very, very few see anything wrong with this, blind to the fact that such a process is only the devil's drug to lull thousands into a false peace. So many have been argued into a believing that they are saved. In reality, their faith sprang from nothing better than a superficial process of logic. Some personal worker, in quotes, addresses a man who has no concern whatever for the glory of God and no realization of his terrible hostility against him. Anxious to win another soul to Christ, he pulls out his New Testament and reads to him 1 Timothy 1.15. The worker says, You are a sinner. And, his man assenting, he is at once informed, then that verse includes you. Next, John 3.16 is read, and the question is asked, Who does the word whosoever include? The question is repeated until the poor victim answers, you, me, and everybody. Then he is asked, will you believe it? Believe that God loves you, that Christ died for you? If the answer is yes, 
he is at once assured that he is now saved. Ah, my hearer, if this is how you were saved, then it was with enticing words of man's wisdom, and your faith stands only in the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5, and not in the power of God. Multitudes seem to think that it is about as easy for a sinner to purify his heart, James 4, 8, as it is to wash his hands, to admit the searching and flesh-withering light of divine truth into the soul, as the morning sun into his room by pulling up the blinds, to turn from idols to God, from the world to Christ, from sin to holiness, as it is to turn a ship right round by the help of her helm. O my hearer, be not deceived on this vital matter. To mortify the lusts of the flesh, to be crucified unto the world, to overcome the devil, to die daily unto sin and live unto righteousness, to be meek and lowly in heart, trustful and obedient, pious and patient, faithful and uncompromising, loving and gentle. In a word, to be a Christian, to be Christ-like, is a task far, far beyond the poor resources of fallen human nature. It is because a generation has arisen which is ignorant of the real nature of saving faith that they deem it such a simple thing. It is because so very few have any scriptural conception of the character of God's great salvation that the delusions referred to are so widely received. It is because so very few realize what they need saving from, that the popular evangel question mark of the hour is so eagerly accepted. Once it is seen that saving faith consists of very much more than believing that Christ died for me, that it involves and entails the complete surrender of my heart and life to his government, fewer will imagine that they possess it. Once it is seen that God's salvation is not only a legal but also an experimental thing, that it not only justifies but regenerates and sanctifies, fewer will suppose they are its participants. Once it is seen that Christ came here to save his people not only from hell but from sin, from self-will and self-pleasing, then fewer will desire his salvation. The Lord Jesus did not teach that saving faith was a simple matter. Far from it. Instead of declaring that the saving of the soul was an easy thing which many would participate in, he said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Matthew seven fourteen. The only path 
which leads to heaven is a hard and laborious one. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. An entrance into that path calls for the utmost endeavors of soul. Strive to enter in at the straight gate, Luke 13.24. After the young ruler had departed from Christ sorrowing, the Lord turned to his disciples and said, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 24 and 25 What place is given to such a passage as this in the theology, if theology it is fit to be called, which is being taught in the Bible Institutes, in quotes, to those seeking to qualify for evangelistic and personal work? None at all. According to their views, it is just as easy for a millionaire to be saved as it is for a pauper, since all that either has to do is rest on the finished work of Christ. But those who are wallowing in wealth think not of God. According to their pastor, so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Hosea 13.6 When the disciples heard these words of Christ, they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Had our moderns heard them, they had soon set their fears at rest and assured them that anybody and everybody could be saved if they believed on the Lord Jesus. But not so did Christ reassure them. Instead, he immediately added, With men it is impossible, but not with God. Mark 10.27 Of himself, the fallen sinner can no more repent evangelically, believe in Christ savingly, come to him effectually, then he can create a world. With men, it is impossible, rules out of court, all special pleading for the power of man's will. Nothing but a miracle of grace can lead to the saving of any sinner. And why is it impossible for the natural man to exercise saving faith? Let the answer be drawn from the case of this young ruler. He departed from Christ sorrowing, for he had great possessions. He was wrapped up in them. They were his idols. His heart was chained to the things of earth. The demands of Christ were too exacting. To part with all and follow him was more than flesh and blood could endure. Hearer, what are your idols? To him the Lord said, One thing thou lackest. What was it? A yielding to the imperative requirements of Christ, a heart 
surrendered to God. When the soul is stuffed with the dregs of earth, there is no room for the impressions of heaven. When a man is satisfied with carnal riches, he has no desire for spiritual riches. The same sad truth is brought out again in Christ's parable of the Great Supper. The feast of divine grace is spread, and through the gospel a general call is given for men to come and partake of it. And what is the response? This. They all, with one consent, began to make excuse. Luke 14.18 And why should they? Because they were more interested in other things. Their hearts were set upon land. Verse 18 Oxen. Verse 19 Domestic comforts. Verse 20 People are willing to accept Christ on their own terms, but not on His. What His terms are is made known in the same chapter, giving Him the supreme place in our affections. Verse 26 The crucifixion of self. Verse 27 The abandonment of every idol. Verse 33 Therefore did He ask, Which of you intending to build a tower, figure of a hard task of setting the affections on things above, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost. Luke 14.28 How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? John 5.44 Do these words Picture the exercise of saving faith as the simple matter which so many deem it. The word honor here signifies approbation or praise. While those Jews were making it their chief aim to win and hold the good opinion of each other and were indifferent to the approval of God, it was impossible that they should come to Christ. It is the same now. Whosoever, therefore, will be, desires and is determined to be, a friend of the world, is the enemy of God. James 4.4 To come to Christ effectually, to believe on Him savingly, involves the turning our backs upon the world alienating ourselves from the esteem of our godless or religious fellows and identifying ourselves with the despised and rejected one. It involves bowing to His yoke, surrendering to His Lordship and living henceforth for His glory. And that is no small task. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. John 6.27 Does this language imply that the obtaining of eternal life is a simple matter? It does not. Far from it. It denotes that a man must be in deadly earnest 
subordinating all other interests in his quest for it, and be prepared to put forth strenuous endeavors and overcome formidable difficulties. Then, does this verse teach salvation by works, by self-efforts? No and yes. No in the sense that anything we do can merit salvation. Eternal life is a gift. But yes, in the sense that wholehearted seeking after salvation and a diligent use of the prescribed means of grace are demanded of us. Nowhere in Scripture is there any promise to the dilatory. Compare Hebrews 4.11 No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John 6.44 Plainly, does this language give the lie to the popular theory of the day, that it lies within the power of man's will to be saved any time he chooses to be. Flatly does this verse contradict the flesh-pleasing and creature-honoring idea that anyone can receive Christ as his Savior the moment he decides to do so. The reason why the natural man cannot come to Christ till the Father draw him is because he is the bond-slave of sin, John 8.34, serving divers' lusts, Titus 3.3. 3. The captive of the devil... 2 Timothy 2.26 Almighty power must break his chains and open the prison doors, Luke 4.18, ere he can come to Christ. Can one who loves darkness and hates the light reverse the process? No. No more that a man who has a diseased foot or poisoned hand can heal it by an effort of will. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? No more can they who are accustomed to do evil do good. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. And if the righteous with difficulty is saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? 1 Peter 4.18, Baxter's Interlinear. Matthew Henry said, It is as much as the best can do to secure the salvation of their souls. There are so many sufferings, temptations, and difficulties to be overcome, so many sins to be mortified. The gate is so straight and the way so narrow that it is as much as the righteous can do to be saved. Let the absolute necessity of salvation balance the difficulty of it. Consider your difficulties are greatest at first. God offers His grace and help. The contest will not last long. Be but faithful to the death, and God will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10 Unquote. So also John Lilly said, After all that God has done by sending His Son and the Son by sending the Holy Spirit, it is only with difficulty 
exceeding difficulty, that the work of saving the righteous advances to its consummation. The entrance into the kingdom lies through much tribulation, through fightings without and fears within, through the world's seductions and its frowns, through the utter weakness and continual failures of the flesh and the many fiery darts of Satan. Unquote. Here, then, are the seven reasons why saving faith is so difficult to put forth. Number one, by nature, men are entirely ignorant of its real character and therefore are easily deceived by Satan's plausible substitutes for it. But even when they are scripturally informed thereon, either they sorrowfully turn their backs on Christ, as did the rich young ruler when he learned his terms of discipleship, or they hypocritically profess what they do not possess. Number two. The power of self-love reigns supreme within, and to deny self is too great a demand upon the unregenerate. Number three, the love of the world and the approbation of their friends stands in the way of a complete surrender to Christ. Number four, the demands of God that he should be loved with all the heart and that we should be holy in all manner of behavior. First Peter 1 Peter 1.15 repels the carnal. Number five, bearing the reproach of Christ, being hated by the religious world. John 15.18, suffering persecution for righteousness' sake, is something which mere flesh and blood shrinks from. Number six, the humbling of ourselves before God, penitently confessing all our self-will, is something which an unbroken heart revolts against. Number seven, to fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6.12, and overcome the devil, 1 John 2.13, is too arduous an undertaking for those who love their own ease. Multitudes desire to be saved from hell, the natural instinct of self-preservation, who are quite unwilling to be saved from sin. Yea, there are tens of thousands who have been deluded into thinking that they have accepted Christ as their Savior, whose lives show plainly that they reject Him as their Lord. For a sinner to obtain the pardon of God, he must forsake his way. Isaiah 55, 7 No man can turn to God until he turns from idols. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 Thus insisted the Lord Jesus, Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33 the terrible thing is that so many preachers today, under the pretense of magnifying the grace of God, have represented Christ as the minister of sin, as one who has, through his atoning sacrifice, 
procured an indulgence for men to continue gratifying their fleshly and worldly lusts. Providing a man professes to believe in the virgin birth and vicarious death of Christ and claims to be resting upon Him alone for salvation, he may pass for a real Christian almost anywhere today, even though his daily life may be no different from that of the moral worldling who makes no profession at all. The devil is chloroforming thousands into hell by this very delusion. The Lord Jesus asks, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Luke 6.46 And insists, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 7.21 The hardest task before most of us is not to learn, but to unlearn. Many of God's own children have drunk so deeply of the sweetened poison of Satan that it is by no means easy to get it out of their systems. And while it remains in them, it stupefies their understanding. So much is this the case that the first time one of them hears an article like this, it is apt to strike them as an open attack upon the sufficiency of Christ's finished work, as though we were here teaching that the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb needed to be plussed by something from the creature. Not so. Nothing but the merits of Emmanuel can ever give any sinner title to stand before the ineffably holy God. But what we are now contending for is, when does God impute to any sinner the righteousness of Christ? Certainly not while he is opposed to him. Moreover, we do not honor the work of Christ until we correctly define what that work was designed to effect. The Lord of glory did not come here and die to procure the pardon of our sins and the taking us to heaven while our hearts still remain cleaving to the earth. No, He came here to prepare a way to heaven. John 10.4 14.4, Hebrews 10.20-22, and 1 Peter 2.21, to call men into that way, that by his precepts and promises, his example and spirit, he might form and fashion their souls to that glorious state and make them willing to abandon all things for it. He lived and died so that his Spirit should come and quicken dead sinners into newness of life, make them new creatures in Himself, and cause them to sojourn in this world as those who are not of it, as those whose hearts have already departed from it. Christ did not come here to render a change of heart, repentance, faith, 
personal holiness, the loving of God supremely and obeying Him unreservedly as unnecessary or salvation as possible without them. How passing strange that any suppose He did. Oh, my hearer, it becomes a searching test for each of our hearts to honestly face the question, Is this what I really long for? As Bunyan asked in his The Jerusalem Sinner Saved, What are thy desires? Wouldest thou be saved? Wouldest thou be saved with a thorough salvation? Wouldest thou be saved from guilt and from filth too? Wouldest thou be the servant of thy Savior? Art thou indeed weary of the service of thy old master the devil, sin and the world? And have these desires put thy soul to flight? Dost thou fly to him that is a Savior from the wrath to come for life? If these be thy desires, and if they be unfeigned, fear not. Unquote. Charles Spurgeon said, Many people think that when we preach salvation, we mean salvation from going to hell. We do mean that, but we mean a great deal more. We preach salvation from sin. We say that Christ is able to save a man, and we mean by that that he is able to save him from sin and to make him holy, to make him a new man. No person has any right to say, I am saved, while he continues in sin as he did before. How can you be saved from sin while you are living in it? A man that is drowning cannot say he is saved from the water while he is sinking in it. A man that is frostbitten cannot say with any truth that he is saved from the cold while he is stiffened in the wintry blast. No, man, Christ did not come to save thee in thy sins, but to save thee from thy sins, not to make the disease so that it should not kill thee, but to let it remain in itself mortal, and, nevertheless, to remove it from thee and thee from it. Christ Jesus came then to heal us from the plague of sin, to touch us with his hand and say, I will be thou clean. Unquote. They who do not yearn after holiness of heart and righteousness of life are only deceiving themselves when they suppose they desire to be saved by Christ. The plain fact is, all that is wanted by so many today is merely a soothing portion for their conscience, which will enable them to go on comfortably in a course of self-pleasing, which will permit them to continue their worldly ways without the fear of eternal punishment. Human nature is the same the world over. That wretched instinct which causes multitudes to believe that the paying a papist priest a few dollars procures forgiveness 
of all their past sins and an indulgence for future ones moves other multitudes to greedily devour the lie that with an unbroken and impenitent heart by a mere act of the will they may believe in Christ and thereby obtain not only God's pardon for past sins but an eternal security no matter what they do or do not do in the future. O my hearer, be not deceived. God frees none from condemnation but those which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are not ought to be passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Saving faith makes a sinner come to Christ with a real soul thirst, that he may drink of the living water, even of his sanctifying spirit. John 7.38 and 39 To love our enemies, to bless them that curse us, to pray for them that despitefully use us is very far from being easy. Yet, this is only one part of the task which Christ assigns unto those who would be his disciples. He acted thus, and he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. And his salvation, in its present application, consists of a revealing to our hearts the imperative need for our measuring up to his high and holy standard with a realization of our own utter powerlessness so to do, and a creating within us an intense hunger and thirst after such personal righteousness, and a daily turning unto him in humble and trustful supplication for needed grace and strength. Arthur Pink Study number six Receiving Christ He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, the right, to become the sons of God to them that believe on his name. John 1, 11 and 12. This implies great and weighty things. Number one, it implies and necessarily includes the right understanding of gospel terms. These must be known, pondered and duly considered before the will can savingly open in an act of consent to Christ's offer. I desire this may be specially observed because multitudes are mistaken about this thing. He that does not consider does not consent. You must exercise your understandings upon the terms and articles of Christianity or else your consent is rash, blindfold, and unstable. This in Luke 14.31 is called consulting. The consent of faith is the result of previous consultations and debates in the mind. The soul 
that comes to Christ must take up religion in its most sedate and serious thoughts. Turn both sides of it, the dark as well as the bright side of religion, to the eye of the mind. Balance all the losses as well as gains. If I open to Christ this, I shall gain, but that I must lose. I cannot separate Christ from sufferings. Christ will separate me from my sins. If I seek Him, I must let them go if I profess Christ. Providence will, one time or other, bring me to this dilemma. Either Christ or earthly comforts must go. It is necessary, therefore, that I now propound to myself what providence may, one time or other, propound to me. He has set down his terms in Matthew 16.24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This self-denial deserves serious consideration. For Christ requires that I give up my life, my liberty, my estate, my relations, and also my own righteousness, which is as hard to be parted with as any of the former. I must take up my cross, and I must follow Christ whithersoever he goes. I know not what religion may cost me before I die. All this it has cost others and there is no bringing down Christ's terms lower than he has laid them. I must come up to them. They will not come down to me. If I like them not as Christ has left them, the treaty between him and me is ended. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10:37 and 38 Where by worthiness we are not to understand the meritoriousness of these acts, but the necessary qualifications of the will and the due preparation of one coming to Christ. These previous consultations and debates in the mind Prepare the will to make a serious and well-advised choice of Christ. And for want of this, there are such swarms of hypocrites and apostates in the world. Number two. It implies such a sense of misery in us and of the necessity and excellency of Christ as determines the will to the choice of him, notwithstanding all the difficulties which have fallen or commonly fall under consideration in the mind. When the soul sees that in Christ which preponderates over all sufferings, all losses and reproaches, and then determines, I will have Christ, though I sacrifice all that is dear to me in the world for him, this is to be truly willing to open to Christ. It is true, the enjoyments of this world are understood by Christians as much as other men. 
They have a feeling sense of the sweetness of earthly enjoyments. Their souls have as much affection to the body as other men. They understand the charming language of the world and their dear relations in it as well as others. Only they see a greater necessity of Christ and a greater worth in Christ than they do in these things. You read that in the famine of Jerusalem they gave their pleasant things for meat to relieve their souls, jewels, bracelets, gold and silver, anything for bread. Lamentations 1.11 They understood the worth of those things, knew the cost of them, but parted with them to preserve life. So it is here. No earthly enjoyment of what value soever it be has such an excellency in it, such an absolute necessity to us of enjoyment as Christ has. Objection But, O saith the soul, who can do this? I am willing to have Christ and to come up to every term he has laid down in the gospel. I am willing to part with every sin and to endure any suffering for Christ. But, oh, I tremble to think if it should come to a prison, a stake, to an actual separation from all the comforts and relations in this world, what shall I do for strength to go through such difficult work as this? Here is the great difficulty in the way of many souls. They find a willingness, but fear the want of strength. Answer. How or where you shall find strength to endure these things for Christ is not the question now before you. God will take care for that, and it shall be given you in that hour. So others have found who have had the same fears you have. I say the question is not whether you are able, but whether you are heartily willing. Christ asks, but your will, he will provide ability. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, 
neither came into my heart. From his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.